because there is a certain level of, you know, community that's involved in making the print because you generally can't do it on your own. You know, you're always going to be in an environment with kind of others or with a technician or, or um, there are going to be technical challenges. So I think the whole kind of community of print is also, I think, an important thing. Friends, and welcome to the 64th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, where, if you like our little podcast and you have a dollar or two you can send our way each month, it makes a world of difference to us. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by our sponsor, Speedball Art Products, who've been bringing a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Their newest exciting initiative is Speedball's Print Posse. Working with contemporary printmaking icons, Speedball has invited each artist to design and name an ink of their choosing. Artists like Bill Fick, who worked with Speedball to design his vibrant shade of relief ink, Revolution Red. Fick is known for his super graphic narrative prints that deal with a variety of satirical and socio-political themes, while bridging the gap between fine and lowbrow art. Fick's shade of Revolution Red is a bold punch of color, perfect for getting things started. For more on Speedball's print posse, or to find out where you can pick up a can of your new favorite ink, check out Speedball Art. My guest this week is Faisal Abdullah, who is known for his ambitious and political installation art pieces, which utilize photography and printmaking. We'll talk about his childhood growing up in London as the son of Jamaican immigrants, the place of the barbershop in his Afro-British community, and how it left that indelible mark on his art practice. We also chat about why media and process are so integral to his ideas and how he centers community in his exhibitions. Faisal also happens to be the current president of the Southern Graphics Council International, and we'll get a first-hand account of how that organization is adapting to 2020 and the future of our beloved conferences. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get out the clippers with Faisal Abdullah. Hi, Faisal. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Well, thank you for joining me um, on your 8 a.m. and my 8 p.m. I think that works out well, and I'm, I'm glad we got to connect. Absolutely. I mean, my day is just beginning while yours is uh, coming to a close, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as I was saying before we started recording, I just got to fight my way through Bangkok traffic and pouring down rain and flooding. And I'm, I'm very happy to be back in my apartment and um, getting a chance to, to have a chat with you. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, the evening is the kind of golden time for me, um, mm. especially as I see the sunset. And I, I get very thoughtful on, mm. the, on the days. of Yeah, and I think it's the same in the morning when I get up and I try to get up with the sun. And again, very thoughtful as I see the sun rising to think about, you know, what is that day going to bring and what are the things I want to try and achieve, you know, what are going to be the tasks and what are going to be the hurdles. So yeah. I think there are two parts of, I would say, entry and departure, I think. For sure. It's um, crepuscular, I think, is the, is the name of the times. And I've always, I've always liked that, that word particularly. And people sometimes see it in art history with crepuscular rays or those you yes. know, old master dramatic rays coming in. So, yeah, I'm glad we got to connect in our crepuscular times. And, you know, I know you from just 
your reputation and the print world, and I know that we've connected here and there at SGCI conferences, but for anyone who's listening in who may not be familiar with their work, how sure. would you go about describing who you are and where you are and what you do? Sure. So my name's Faisal Abdullah. I'm a professor at UW Medicine, and I'm in the print department, print, uh, printmaking area. And I was born and raised in London and had my education, formal education in London at uh, Royal College of Art and Central St. Martins. And I've been making my work for about, you know, 20 plus years. And the work that I create is, you know, that looks at, you know, faith and kind of history, myth, memory, violence. And it's a practice primarily uh, rooted in, in kind of printmaking, but it has many facets. And I guess my kind of main drive is to look at ways of using uh, material, ways of using um, the multiple and thinking about uh, very relevant uh, issues and themes that primarily have affected my own evolution as a, uh, as a, as a person. So there, you know, there are issues that look at kind of race, uh, issues that look at, I would say, representation um, and the human subject. And, you know, some of the works that I've created have, have, have utilized, I would say, materials, for example, you know, I've worked with glass, I've worked with gold, I make sculptures. So some people are a bit bemused when they say, oh, you're trained as a printmaker, but you make objects, but you, you, take, you make photographs, you, make, you do performances. So I say my, my practice is, is extremely um, broad in its approach. And, you know, the early works were based around my experience of living in London. And then the later works that I've made in the last sort of seven years have been based through the lens of living in the U.S. And where are you located currently in the United States? So I'm currently in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, right in the middle, the Midwest. And it's great because, you know, I'm, I'm eight hours either side of you know, another major, uh, of the East Coast and the West Coast. Right. And, you know, and I think the Midwest, you know, has its, has its own history. It's a long-standing history with, with printmaking and a long-standing kind of history in, um, in kind of civil rights, especially on, on the UW campus. So there's a lot of things that I'm able to tease from this uh, community since I've been here in the last sort of seven years. Yeah. And so you mentioned growing up in London. Can you talk just a little bit more about that time for you and what role art played in your life? Yes, when I was a young kid, you know, I was the last child of eight. And, you know, my sisters would say that I'm the one that's spoiled, who was able to have a, a career in the arts. Mm -hmm. and, um, and my father, he was a, a church minister. So I would, you know, see my father every, you know, once a week, mm -hmm. you know, uh, make supplications and, and speak to pictures. And one of the things he would do, he would speak to, a picture on the wall of Jesus, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. And he would say, you know, dear Jesus, you know, protect my family. And as a young kid, you know, I was bewildered by the reverie that he would give to this image. And then what I would also do, I would draw a lot um, on the dining table because it was a way that I created a lot of space around me. And coupled with that, you know, once a, a month, we'd go to the local barbershop, which would be in somebody's home. So my parents came to the UK from Jamaica in the sort of late 60s, early 70s. Racial tension was high in, the, in London. And the black communities were formed because relationships were made earlier in the so-called Commonwealth countries like Jamaica, Barbados. Mm. So a lot of these men would convene in these homes and they were already friends. You know, and I was young and they always say children are seen and not heard. And I would sit and watch the barber hold court in the back of his room. And he'd be literally sculpting the shape and form around these people's heads. But I was really interested by the whole play of people in the corner playing dominoes, somebody over there smoking a cigar, somebody having a conversation about a liaison at the weekend. Hmm. And for me, watching this uh, informal educational space. So I always cited as the, the barber shop space within... Mr. Wright's home in London um, as the first place where I learned what it meant to understand my own identity as a young person. Mm -hmm. And then as I began to draw and paint and began to somehow reflect some of those stories, 
in in my primary class. You know, I be you know my teachers began to understand that there was some you know potential, there was some capacity for them to support my you know the what I was doing, and my parents didn't get it because they they felt you know you're academically smart, we want you to go to be a lawyer. Hmm. That was um, so. I guess I just kept drawing as a way of almost talking about that moment of the sunrise, the sunset moment, where there was a way that I could find some solace, a way that I could escape, and a way that I could almost create these um, imaginary places and spaces. And when I went to uh, secondary school, you get to the point when you get to uh, 16, where you make your options to say, these are the subjects I want to major in. And I chose art, and obviously my parents made me choose other subjects, biology, physics, Mm. very well in those subjects. And my art teacher, Mr. May, entered me into the art exam early. And I got really, really, you know, I got a pass, a really strong pass in it. And then I think the following day, he took three of us to the National Portrait Gallery in London in Chicago Square. And he put us in the back of his old Ford Capri. I mean, nowadays that would never happen. <laughs> right. He was a hippie, took these young guys to, to the um, National Portrait Gallery. We got out. And as I walked in, it was almost like this, uh, it's almost like I'd, I'd arrived because I'd seen all of these paintings in books because, you know, we never had internet in the 80s. It was, you know, I'd seen these paintings in books in my art class. I had to copy these paintings, mm. you know, from exercises from, from Mr. May. So I was looking at, you know, Paul Rubens, I was looking at Degas, I was looking at so many of the works that I'd only seen in books. But there was something about the place and space that felt right. It felt extremely comfortable, you know. And I guess that was the one of the kind of, the, I would say, the first seminal moment of kind of belonging and feeling as if there was a form of natural selection. Hmm. And then he... I think it was about three months later, he said to me, um, you know, your applications are coming up for going to your degree. You know, I'm I'm assuming, you know, we're going to get your portfolio together. It was almost like he had already created the conversation that I was going to apply to art school. Yeah. I looked at him bemused and I said, me to art school? I mean, I'm like 17 years old, the first in my, you know, family to go to university or potentially. Mm -hmm. And... My teacher's telling me that I'm going to go to art school. My teacher's going to go crazy. He's actually going to lose his mind. So, you know, the applications came up and everything then was done again by phone and post. So I would, I think it was sometime in, I can't remember when it was. It might have been March or April. My father summoned me to the kitchen and he says, you know, so um, you're going to do the application now and apply to medical school or law school. And I said, yes, dad, and, and him and my dad and I think my cousin was at the house and they they chaperoned, they, they walked me to the telephone, you know, the old school telephone that was plugged into the wall and you had to, you had to dial it. So anyone that doesn't know what a dial-up phone looks like, you know, I had to dial the number. So I dialed the school and the university and it was a summer and I think nobody picked up the phone. So he they, they left the room and then... I dialed the art school and they picked up and I asked them, could they send me the application form? So I guess unbeknownst to my father, I, I applied to the art school. They uh, sent me the uh, not- notice for an interview. Uh, Mr. May and Mr. McClements helped me put my portfolio together. And I applied to three schools, just applied to three schools and went for the interview. And it felt like jazz. It was like an informal conversation. They were asking me really kind of left field questions. And there I was this like, you know, bright 17 year old kid. And I got three offers and I, and I couldn't believe it. And I think it was from that point on, I, I kind of answered the calling and did my um, foundation in art at Harrow School of Art. And Harrow School of Art is in West London and it's very close to Harrow Boys School where Winston Churchill went and uh, David... Cameron went. Uh, it's a very famous public school. And then I, that was for one year. And then I did my, applied for my BA and I applied to Central St. Martins. And again, very, very competitive to get in. And I applied for printmaking because when I was on my foundation, you do all the aspects of, 
of art. It's a foundation for one year. So I did fashion, I did graphics, I did painting. And I dabbled in printmaking. And when I was choosing for a course to apply to, my professor says, what are you applying for? And I says, graphic design. And she went, you're not a graphic designer. Hmm. And she literally <laughs> laughed at me. I said, why? So why can't I do graphics? She said, no, you are a printmaker. She says, printmaker? I said, I've done it, but I don't want to do printmaking. I don't want to print newspapers. And she went, no, it's not printing newspapers. Again, you know, I was 17, naive. And she literally, you know, took my hand and took me to the library and showed me, you know, a lot of the kind of work and the ways in which print manifests itself in the world. And then, and then she said to me, look, apply to Central St. Martins. It's the best printmaking uh, course in the country. I think you, you know, you might do well. And I applied and I got into Central St. Martins and it completely transformed my life. And the BA at St. Martins was three years. And then after that, I applied for my the masters. You know, as you as you grow as a student, you begin to understand the network of the art educational system. And at the time, there were only there were three major art schools in London, and there still is the Royal College of Art, the Slade School of Art, uh, Royal Academy. And I applied to both. I applied to the Royal, Royal College of Art and the Slade. And the interesting thing was back then they would have interviews around about the same time, and they would almost you know they would compete for the students. And and I got into the Royal College, and I think the week later, I had the interview at the Slade. And when I went for the interview at the Slade, they said, well, if you get into the Royal College, will you come to here? And I said, of course I'll come to the Slade. Of course I'll. <laughs> and it's funny because I had a friend who was on the interview panel, and she called me up and says, you know, you're not going to get into the Slade. And I said, why? She said, they think you're going to get into the Royal College. You're going to turn them down. So they're not going to offer you a place. I think it was like a week later, I got the letter from the Slade, but I hadn't heard from the Royal College and I was a little bit nervous. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but it was fine. You know, I got in and then, you know, and uh, the Royal College was two years. And then after that, um, I continued to make my work as an artist. And the Royal College was an amazing experience because I studied at the same time as David Ajay or Sir David Ajay now. Uh, mm -hmm. Johannes Fekeller, Chris O'Feely, Sue Stockwell, Hugh Locke. I mean, these are all amazing people, you know. So the Royal College was an amazing time between 1991 and 1993. How do you think that your mentor knew you were a printmaker? What was it about you or your practice that you think she could just spot you as, as one of us? I mean, I think, I mean, when I think about it now, you know, I, I have this kind of blueprint in my head about um, three stages of practice and, and it's like the thinking, the making and the dissemination. And, you know, and I think that, you know, the process of making work is almost like ritualistic. So, you know, I have ideas and the ideas come from things that I've seen or experienced or things that I've tasted or things that have touched me or things that don't sit well with me. And then I find a, a vehicle to have those things speak through. And what I found when I was, working in a print studio, working with, you know, screen and working with this. So I felt that screen printing, for example, had a certain kind of speed attached to it. So my ideas were able to, to, to come very, very quickly. And each one was a version of the other. So there was a certain pace um, and a certain kind of uh, application that working with a particular kind of processing printmaking really impacted the way that I was was making and and then when I would do etching for example which is a lot slower and a lot more timely and a lot more thoughtful the work was more timely and thoughtful mm -hmm. and when I was thinking about ideas that had a certain kind of scale or something that needed to be potentially made three-dimensional again it was always dictated you know by the the medium so it was almost like the way I could describe it is when I did a piece a few years ago and it was called uh, Doula 69 and it was a series of photographic etchings. And somebody said to me, why didn't they just make them as photographs? Because they, they look like, you know, medium format, uh, black and white photographs. But I says, no, the process of etching is really integral to this work. Because what it does, it's the portrait of 11 people's stories of the apartheid regime in South Africa. And they were talking about being deconstructed and reconstructed 
through their own um, self-healing. And when I took their photograph, each photograph at a certain time of the day, at a certain point uh, when I was in Joburg for a residency, I then had the images placed onto a plate. And I said, when the plate goes into the acid, that's when they're deconstructed. Mm. That's when they're attacked by this, by, this, by this medium. That's when they almost become a negative. They don't kind of exist. And then when I take them out of the acid and rinse them in water, it almost like they become in that state of neutrality. And then the inking of the plate is the reviving of them. And then for me, you know, and, and then the paper, when it hits the surface and it pulls them off, it almost like pulls them back to life, like the resurrection happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's how I've always felt about working in, in print, that it's more than just a process. It's a very bodily thing. And I, and I think I felt that in the first instance when I was working on my foundation and working in the print studio, because I was painting at the same time, I was making sculptures, but there was something that really pulled me. And maybe it was because of my spiritual centering as a young person growing up and always being very mindful of, you know, just meditating and very mindful of my environment and always thinking about, you know, material and how people somehow can imbue a sense of, spirituality and objects. Mm-hmm. So I think that's my kind of introductory into the printmaking world, I guess. Yeah, and that, that repetitive nature of printmaking is so much like meditation, I think, for a lot of people and, you know, just like doing the rosary or something or, or, yeah. or chanting it. It has that, exactly. that quality of, of taking oneself out of oneself. Yeah. 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 And I mean, yeah. and I think when I teach my students and they come into the class and some of them are doing print for the first time and I say to them, the first print that was ever made is all of you in this room. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, you are all a version of your parents. And then they kind of look and they just can't imagine what <laughs> British professor talking about. <laughs> Again, it's just about thinking, I just saying about the idea of, you know, repetition and, mm-hmm. and the multiple. And I think that is the beauty of, of why I think printmakers, I think, are probably the far most interesting people that I speak to because, you know, that work manifests in so many different ways. It manifests outside of the, um, in, in the in public space. I think it functions in on three-dimensional forms. It, you know, it functions because it has, we have the capacity to have things disintegrate because sometimes, because it's a multiple, we can create this thing and then set it on fire mm. because that's what we need to do. So I love the complexity and the um, and the bandwidth that which printmakers can function and how their mind functions because there is a certain level of you know community that's involved in making the print because you generally can't do it on your own you know yeah. you're always going to be in an environment with kind of others or with a technician or or um, there are going to be technical challenges so I think the whole kind of community of print is also I think an important thing. Yeah, I'm still my mind is still sort of like stuck on this idea of like humans as prints and I just have these images in my head of grainy videos from biology class of cells just splitting and splitting and splitting and copying and I'm just like oh my gosh <laughs> like that's that's what we all are that's that's the sort of fundamental nature of creation that's so interesting so I would say speaking of communities I know a lot of your work um, actually engages with communities. Um, and that I think that I've heard you speak about your your exhibitions in, a, I think, a really interesting way in terms of how it's not a passive, you know, you're an artist who's created something and the work exists when someone has come and consumed it, but rather mm-hmm. that, like, actually through the viewing, the work is given meaning and the work is given life. And I know that we're all living in a time when community consumption of art is a little bit more difficult, but I'm hoping that you can sort of speak to your philosophies around that and maybe in this time when we're all kind of having a little breather for it, give some people sort of inspiration about different creative ways they can think about how they're going to engage community once we're able to do that again. Yeah, no, I, I think for me, you know, the community has always been something that has been in my in my core, and I always think it's um, it's important to try and be your kind of authentic self. So, 
just to recap on, a, on one of the projects I did at Stanford where it was two people who had this amazing understanding and relationship with each other. And I asked them, is there anybody in their life that they trust implicitly? And they both said each other. And I said, no, you know, I need to have somebody else's name. And each person gave me a name. And then those two people, I took their portrait and asked them to summon the person to my studio. When those two people came at different times, I, I said to them, you know, you've been summoned because you're trusted implicitly by this individual. And a complete, you know, veil of joy came over them. Mm. And then I took that, and I said, do you mind if I take your portrait, you know, for the project? And they said, sure. Then I asked them the same question. And then they, it went on. And then each line, the first line had 10 people, the second line had 10 people. And then I created this 30 foot photograph that had each person that that person had recommended on their left-hand side. It was this 30-foot portrait, and it was called uh, 10 Degrees of Separation. And it was a project that was started by these two people, and it's almost like they were the, the kind of the authors of it through their line of love. And, you know, for me telling them that I'm going to create this piece and hopefully have it in a, in a major show in a year and a half time, they would, they didn't believe me. They were these, these are young, brilliant students at Stanford. Hmm. And it was so beautiful to have the thing made. And then I sent both of them books of, of, of the show. And I think having a, doing a project with a community, a lot of artists parachute themselves in, don't get to know the community. And then, you know, and then leave once they've got what they, what they have. So for me, it's really important that the community are always the brains in, in the work. They contribute to the work. And in some ways, if they can help augment the work, I think that's really important. I think in the time of, of, of COVID, I think it's, I have seen and I've, you know, and I've witnessed a lot of unkind words, you know, mm. shared by people because, and I understand it because I understand that if, if you are in a space where you're on your own and all you have are, are, is the information from social media, then it's really going to somehow you know, augment and shift the way that you kind of potentially look at self and look at others. And what I've done, you know, recently is, is so for example, when I was working with my students in the first six weeks of, of lockdown, I mean, printmaking is a, you know, is a physical act. And I'm given the task of trying to create physical work and students do not have a studio. So it's me trying to teach somebody to swim in a desert. It's actually impossible. Mm. But what I could say to them as a community was, is that they are part of a community that has, and this has never happened in a generation. And I said to them that I want to use this class for us to actually make a book. And what you are going to do as individuals is start to um, craft some kind of language. You're going to begin to craft some kind of images. And every week, this, this project was almost like a check-in. So for me, you know, the class is two and a half hours, but we only needed to meet for like 45 minutes. And then it turned out that everyone was almost like presenting their segment of this kind of book or a part of the book that they wanted to contribute to. And then we slowly began to shape the book virtually. So we began to, there was, I found somebody in the class who could design. I found somebody in the class who wanted to, work on the edits. So I gave them, you know, creative control of the project. So even though I'm the professor in the class, I've assembled a team of, of people in the class with certain duties. And when it came to the second class, second to last class, I presented this finished virtual book and they were like, you could see how emotionally they, you know, they became. Mm. Seeing that there was this book that they created that talked purely about this time in isolation. And I said, what I'm also going to do, we're going to get them printed and I'm going to send each one of you the physical book. Hmm. And for me, it's been beautiful just to actually get these, these 12 physical books and then, you know, and then post them out to the students because it was their work. And for me, I just think it's in, in this time of, of uncertainty, you know, this is where artists really flourish. I think this is when we really have to, you know, um, maybe hold a mirror up to society again. And maybe it's not always clear. And we're going to do things that maybe are not going to be seen in the best light. But if we're able to reassess them and, and admit our failings and say sorry 
and and keep moving forward. I, I think that's that's one of the keys. So for me, you know, working with those communities um, and helping them to augment uh, things that are physical and finding ways of them being able to have these physical things. Because I'm slightly paranoid about the virtual world. I like to have physical things I can touch. And so now we have 12 students out there that have this book. They all have a book each. And in that book, their name is in that book. And in that book, there is an introduction where I just talk about the time of COVID. And they are the first generation of young people to have school suspended and be working remotely. And I said to them, imagine this, in 20 years time, you're gonna be sitting in a bar somewhere and maybe a young person sitting next to you who is the same age as you now. And they're gonna say, 20 years ago, there was this thing called COVID and these, I don't know what these students did. And you're gonna say you lived through that. And you're also gonna be able to show them testimony in this physical book that you had crafted with your other 11 colleagues in that class. And you're gonna hold those people's names very dear to you because you don't realize how important this moment is. So I just think it's just important that if, we, if we're able to, to work kind of collectively and, and, and create wonderful things that can have some kind of sustained, sustained um, uh, life that you know, another generation can come in and see the words or read the words or see the images or somehow participate in what you were going through. And I think that's the only way that I can kind of, you know, describe it. Absolutely. And and that, you know, while of course there are artists who create things digitally now um, or ephemeral in other ways like music in the past, one of the things that, that really struck me when I was an art historian and I was studying 16th century printmaking was just how the artifacts that we have from the past are almost really entirely art. Um, and of course, you know, there are some, every once in a while, you know, some historian will find a, a ledger for a 17th century, you know, Dutch firehouse and it will be their smoking gun for their thesis. But the things that people have chosen to preserve and passed down and chosen to privilege as precious are art. It's, it's writing and it's pictures that people yeah. have drawn and created. And so in terms of physicality and in terms of how we are placing ourselves in history, I think it's really beautiful that you're making sure that there are physical objects because, you know, there are already just, you know, since the 1980s, things that are lost because there's no real technology around that's accessible to be able to read them. And of course, this is only going to going to increase. And we are living, as the saying goes, in unprecedented times. And, you know, really thinking consciously in this bird's eye view about how we're marking this and how we're going to be able to communicate this extremely intense and confusing time is something that I think everyone should be doing really consciously. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, and I think to, to add on to that point mm -hmm. is working collectively with communities, you know, they, they then become also collaborators in, in the world. So it's not only me. And I always make a point of, you know, when I'm working with communities and that work is shown, their names are shown alongside my name within the work. Mm -hmm. So there are these bodies of works that exist out there that have these co-authors. So hopefully in years to come when that work is seen, then they'll see these other names and, and understand that, you know, not only one artist tells the story, because I think artists are the shapers of social consciousness and what they have shaped sometimes has not been good. You know, I went out to galleries when I was young and I would see, you know, paintings when I was young of bodies that looked like mine, but in subservient positions mm -hmm. or being maimed. And that generally was the, the kind of the representation that I would see. And in a way, I made a contract with myself to ensure that I would change that. And I would make a small contribution in, in changing the representation of bodies like mine in, in visual culture. Well, I know that you know, one of the pieces that first, I think, started to get you a lot of attention was, was it, I, 
I'm sorry. I'm going to kill. I want to kill Sam. Is that you got it? it? Yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah. yeah. I want to kill Sam. And so I guess speaking of, <laughs> of, of bodies and how they're represented, I feel like this would be a great time maybe to speak about that piece because it also seems like it's just as pertinent, if not more so now, you know, what, 30 years on. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want to kill Sam is, 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 is one of the pieces that people really picked up on. And, and I guess it was me, I think the works that I create, you know, somehow annotate my 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 life, I guess. And, you know, I Wanna Call Sam came at a time when I was questioning my own identity as a, as a young man, as I was being informed by rappers. Rap, I was, you know, listening to people like KRS-One and Lakeem Shabazz, very, very conscious rappers, you know, do the right thing had come out. You know, I was reading Malcolm X. And the first thing I checked in was my name, because my name prior to Faisal was Paul Anthony Duffus. Hmm. And, you know, I was, I would say to myself, Duffus is a Scottish name. I mean, what, you know, I don't look Scottish. Well, I could look Scottish, but I don't sound Scottish. And my parents are from Jamaica. So how did my parents from Jamaica end up with a Scottish name? So the more and more I began to, you know, do all that research, I began to realize that there needs to be a shift because for me, a good name is better than silver and gold. And I wanted to, um, so my name changed, you know, I, I embraced Islam and, and changed the name. And I want to the sound was almost, um, ref, you know, reflective and indicative of a consciousness that was happening in London. There was a lot of young black kids listening to American rap and becoming conscious. So they were all changing their English names and taking on more Afrocentric names. And then I decided to then do this project, I Want to Kill Sam, based off the Ice Cube track that talked about simply of young men going to fight in the Vietnam War, young black men, being given these promises, and when they come back, they're treated like second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. And what I did was I took some portraits of some of my friends who were rappers, and I would say really prolific in the community in terms of uh, being extremely conscious, and I had this idea to have them screen printed onto steel. So this is when I was at the Royal College of Art, I, I was making these pieces. And the whole notion of creating these perforated screen printed images. So when you see the bodies printed on these large metal surfaces, um, from a distance you see, you know, a monochromatic black body, you know, standing symmetrically and they're holding a weapon. And as you get closer to the image, you see the surface, you see it's on metal, it's non-reflective. Non but more importantly, the closer you get to the image, the more fragmented it is because it's made up of these very, very fine dots. And I'll never forget when I showed the piece and somebody said that they're consumed by their own abstraction. So the closer you get to the body, mm. the more abstract it comes. And in some ways that was the way in which I would view the, the idea of the black body that most people, the closer they got to black bodies, I felt the more abstract we 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 became to society. So the Wonderful Sound was was a piece that really um, talked a lot about um, the colonization of the of, of the black mind. Um, it talked critically about Lord Kitchener, who was a, a, a very a decorated British uh, general, you know, who slaughtered thousands of North Africans mm -hmm. in the Battle of Omdurman, and the Wonderful Sam five pieces surrounded this screen printed coffin with Lord Kitchener's face on it. So, you know, and this piece caused a lot of problems at my degree show. I was told I couldn't show this piece at my degree show at the Royal College of Art. And it was only up until the final week, because I just said, well, if I can't show the piece then I won't show anything. And they finally, you know, gave in and, and gave me a small space at the back and the work was shown and it was taken up in, in the art world. And for me, it was very much looking at the idea of how the black body can be seen in a myriad of, of, of contexts and somehow reclaiming that. Because people say that, you know, the bodies were violent. I said, well, no, they're, they're defending themselves. I don't see them as being violent. I mean, I see images of, and I would make the same uh, comparison with 007 or mm. uh, Blood, Sylvester Stallone or, Terminator, Schwarzenegger, and there was a way that I would somehow incorporate cinematic elements of the work so that it would be more disarming. So 
whatever I would present, I would say, well, but there's this other example if you look at it. Why are why are my figures in Monaco Sam so dangerous? But 007 is loved. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. And you know, one is pointing a gun and one is being extremely sexually promiscuous. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But yeah, you know, the way in which they're, they're being interpreted is completely different. Yeah, that, that implicit that if, if a white body is holding a gun, he's a hero and a protector. And if a black body is holding a gun, it's something dangerous. Absolutely. So that particular, you know, body of work that you're talking about, the I Want to Kill Sam, you know, that was, of course, using a, a, a lyric from an American rapper. Yeah. Um, but you said a lot of your work was about London and, and about that. And, but as you said, you have transitioned to the United States about seven years ago. Sure. How has that sort of reflected in your practice? Right. So I, I came to the U.S. in 89 as an exchange student. So as I said, that, that was almost, you know, I came and I was at Boston, Massachusetts, and I came as Paul Duffus, and that's when I went through that transformation, came back, changed my name to Faisal Abdullah, then made a one to Sam. And from 89 up until the present day, I'd been going backwards and forwards to the US. And then um, in 2014, you know, I was asked to apply for a position at UW and you know, was made a professor here. And... What I realize is that, that there is a, a, a fascination and an obsession here with race. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing here is that there are lots of uh, conversations about race. And for me, it's, it, it can be slightly um, disheartening when I sit with the black community and a lot of those decisions that they make are primarily based through the lens of, of race. And when I sit with my colleagues in the university, they say, let's have a conversation about race. And I'm like, well, I'm slightly nervous here because I think, you know, we need to move beyond the rhetoric. Mm. And, and, what I, and, and, and I think the work that I was creating was somehow trying to do that. So I think one of the first pieces I made when I came here was based off the, the Guardian was doing a website called The Counted. And they were putting up every day the numbers of black people that had been killed by police. Mm. So this was how many years ago? I remember that, yeah. Yeah, I began to get fascinated by, you know, numbers. And I'm always numerically superstitious. So I began to screen print these numbers. And almost as if I was just screen printing these numbers onto a, there was a white number onto a black background. And it was just the idea of exposing and washing out the screen felt very bodily, you know? It's like, you know, creating this screen was almost like creating this, this, um, it's like creating this human being. And then washing out the screen was almost like erasing the human being. So there was some level of mortality for me involved in the, the way of creating the work. And, and also, you know, what was really interesting for me is, is the invisible black presence within the US. So. You know, as I began to do more research, I, you know, I began to find out all of these um, black inventors, you know, that did these patents. And I began to look around my home and say, oh, my God, that ironing board was done by, you know, Boone, the, the light filament and, you know, the, the amber traffic signal. So there's all these things, there's all these kind of um, invisible kind of achievements by black excellence that was kind of going unchecked. So I think on one side, there was a kind of, there was a discomfort with the over-analyzation and the kind of the overthinking about race. But on the other hand, I think by always making it, I think at the forefront, it was always something that would somehow help me make a, an informed uh, decision or a choice on the material, on the purpose and maybe finding a, 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 a filtered and conceptual way to talk about these ideas that everybody could access. And in some ways, there was something democratizing that print was able to help me do. So, you know, me creating this, you know, an etching, it meant that the printmakers were intrigued at what this thing was. And they would come in, they'd be pulled in to, to look at this thing. Um, but then when they were pulled in, then they would see the content, then they would be somehow be better informed. So I think 
I was hoping that, you know, some of those works would, would have this multi-layer in terms of a kind of a visual, you know, aesthetic that had a, a kind of a certain technical proficiency, but somehow historically took them through a certain kind of uh, more informed process. So I guess one of the pieces that I did here that I think really stands up is the sculpture. I made a piece um, called the Barber Chair. And essentially, you know, as I was saying about my early years of growing up in London and, and the barbershop being my first institute of, of education, began to think about how all of those, sorry, how the formative years had really um, um, informed my life and created this 24 karat gold barber chair mm. you know, as a way of looking at, you know, this portal of empirical importance that had formed um, my identity and it also being a space or a platform that people were able to transform themselves. Yeah. So, you know, it, for yeah. me, it was almost like, you know, and my practice as a barber, because I would cut hair when I was a student and continue to cut hair throughout my student life. And I still have a barbershop in London. The practice of cutting hair for everyone is, is, is almost a way in which people can be the best, best version of themselves. And, you know, the way in which people come in as one thing and leave as another. So me, it was almost like, you know, talking about the importance of that. Yeah. And I know that um, you also did a, a performance, too. And I don't think it was with the, the gold barber chair, but it was a, you know, performance where you actually be cutting hair because you're, you know, you're not yeah. just someone who's interested in the cultural place of the barbershop, but you've been sort of a practicing barber as well, like with the with the skills for that, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I was asked by Jessica Borsanger who was the partner of Bob and Roberta Smith years ago to do a lecture for her university at Kent. But she then said, but you have to perform it. And I says, I don't do performances. I just come and speak and I will, you know, I can play some music. She said, no, 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 no. Can you perform it? I says, no, I can't do it. And she was steadfast. She kept emailing me and said, look, we'd love you to perform it. I said, well, what can I do? I can't sing. I can't dance. I'm doing any of those things. But she says, well, you cut hair, don't you? I says, yeah, but why would I come and do that? She says, well, can you perform it? I says, I could do it with my eyes closed, but and give a lecture at the same time? She says, yeah, that would be great. So I turned up at Kent, uh, and I think that day my son was sick. So he came with me. So he was the model in the chair. Mm. And we had these 15, about 15 students sitting around me in a circle, and... I just started talking about my work and there were no slides. It's just me visually telling them, not visually, but me speaking to them in kind of visual terms to describe the work. And it just felt like an informal barbershop. And we spoke for an hour strong and it just kind of really worked. And from that point on, I think Jessica had asked me to do it again at the, in the British art show uh, at the Hayward Gallery. And they called it Live Salon. And from that point on, Life Salon came into existence. And it was just a way of looking at the, the barber shop, looking at the cutting of hair, looking at the experience of transforming oneself through, through different life experiences. So people would come into the barber shop if they got a divorce to get a haircut. Right. The, break, the breakup bangs or breakup fringe, like that's famous. There you go. The breakup. And then... You know, the, the, the married cut, the divorce cut, you know, there were all different types of, of cuts that people would, would have. And, and, and for me, I would say that when I, would, when I was working in the shop, I would travel the world nine times a day by hearing people's different life stories. And I guess there was, there was some level of uh, confidentiality that we have to keep. And, and, and I've, I found that I began to take a lot of that stuff with me. So... Spiritually, when I would go to the shop, you know, you take all that stuff for the day and you almost like bring it home. So I had to go through a almost like a process of cleansing when I'd get home by taking my clothes off at the door and then going straight upstairs for a shower just to take the weight of the day off me. So for me, the, you know, the, the barber shop, you know, live salon 
was a really, really important because it looked at that kind of um, that terrain that everyone understands. And I always find that when I'm cutting hair, performing it in a live salon or doing the live salon performance in a school, when people walk past, they always stop. They mm. always stop and smile. And if they stop and smile, they will come back and they will sit and just want to listen. And I think that's something that, it's something that I think we all understand. We all understand what it means to be waiting, to be transformed. We all understand what it means that we're reliant on somebody to make us be the best version of ourselves. We, we kind of understand that, you know, hair is a form of art, form of artistry. And I think in particularly for the black community, it, it foregrounds, you know, issues around race and politics. And also it becomes a, an, an interesting safe space for that black community. Because I know in the 70s, that was the only place that the immigrant community would go and sit and could talk candidly about their current life and get advice. And I think a lot of that has gone now, but it, it did actually make me into the person I am now and still find the notion of community really, really important. Yeah, that's beautiful. So for the last little bit that I've got you here, I'm going to ask you to switch gears a little bit and, and from talking about your own practice to talking about another role that you have, which is you're currently the president for the Southern Graphics Council International. Um, and relatively recently, I think in maybe recent months that you've, you've stepped into the role. And, you know, I know basically that every printmaker I talk to were super saddened by the cancellation of SGCI 2020 that was going to be in Puerto Rico. But of course, anyone with, with any sense completely understands why. But I know that that yearly meetup, that exchange of ideas, it is the highlight of the year for so many people, particularly printmakers who are working outside of major metropolitan areas where maybe they don't have that collective community. Can you speak to us about the prospects of SGCI 2021 at this point? If we know if that's going to happen or not, or what it might look like, and if it doesn't happen physically, any kind of supplemental programming you can drop some hints about? Sure. Yeah, I can, I can definitely drop some hints. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> um, because we know so little now, I'm sure it's just all, yeah. everything's very much up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there will be some uh, communications going out in the, in the next week or so uh, about the, the, the conferences. I think the most important thing is that, you know, I think myself as just as an artist, you know, I value the, the, the safety and the health and well-being mm. of people and and more so our members and I think it was it was definitely the the right move it was it was it was quite it was sad but I think you know knowing that our members are are safe and well is really important I think you know in in the next you know week or so there'll be some updates on what we have planned for 2021. I think it will be exciting. Uh, there are a lot of things that, you know, we are talking about doing for our members. You know, you know, I've, we've had to listen a lot to a lot of their comments and their suggestions. And I think the organization, you know, from 1972 has done some amazing things. And, and what we're doing, we are trying to make ourselves extremely relevant and accountable at the same time. So we're listening to the kind of ideas that our members are suggesting. And for 21, there will definitely be some kind of uh, event. We're going to also be uh, telling you about 22, 23, and 24. For me, you know, I, that's what I've been working really hard on in giving the members, you know, not just bad news, but news that has solutions. So we will say, yes, this conference is going to happen in this format. In 22, this is going to happen. In 23, this is going to happen. In 24, this is going to happen. So there's going to be a lot of uh, information that we're going to be disseminating to our members within, I'd say, a week from now. Excellent. Well, we will definitely all look forward to, to hearing that. And so, you know, I, I think that 
as you said, that there's been people who've been offering feedback and SGCI has been taking that into account and responding to it. And I think that being critical of, of our institutions and our collectives are always really important to make sure that everyone is being accountable and we're always evolving. But is there anything printmakers can do to sort of help SGCI at this time as well? Because it is something that, like I said, and I think like many people would agree with, those conferences mean so much. I've made incredible friendships there. I'm actually I'm actually living in Bangkok now because of one of those conferences. At SGCI San Francisco, I met the amazing Thai printmaker, Kitty Kong, and through our friendship and our professional relationship, mm-hmm. I ended up with a job offer at a gallery here in Bangkok. Like they've changed my life fundamentally. And so while being critical is important and I'm glad that SGCI is, is open to this dialogue, is there anything we can do to to help and to help at a time when all kinds of organizations are struggling to help sort of come together and support each other and make sure that we still get to reap the benefits of this of this institution? Yeah, I, I think the first thing is that I would hope the members still have faith in in the organization and the board. And, you know, serving on the board is 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 a thankless task. And yeah. because we do it because we 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 love organization and we love printmaking i mean i think they need to understand that we are artists first and foremost and we're going to try and pull the levers always um, in favor of the artists and i think the second thing is that you know i think the critique is important but i think i would love for them to also provide the solution so if you can write a three-page email critiquing then surely you can write a page email to say well actually this is how we can solve it mm-hmm and, and I would urge some of the, the, the members who really want to see change, you know, again, in, in a week or so, we're going to be advertising for uh, spaces on the, on the board. So there will be spaces opening up for people to, to join the board and see and be a part of the change that they want to see in the organization. So for me, it's almost like I want members to be more involved in the board, you know, I need to hear their their voices and we need to kind of understand what are we missing? Because when you think about this is that, you know, I'm of a certain generation, our members are of a certain generation. So there are things that I may miss and there are things that they may miss. And it's important that we're able to have this conversation in that void mm-hmm. when we can say, this is what's actually relevant now. And therefore it may have been relevant when you were, you know, 25 but this is what we think is, is kind of really important. And I think having that civil discussion and exchange, I think is gonna be really, really important. So I think those are the things that I would, I would just really are at the forefront of my mind in terms of how I think we can pull the organization uh, to a place that, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of comfortable. And, and I think the next conferences are gonna be really, really amazing. You know, there's one, uh, for 2022 and you know 23, 24, and even 21. I mean, we've got some really amazing kind of ideas and things that we're going to do, which are going to be more member-centric. Beautiful. Yeah, I just realized as you were talking, you know, kind of about the different generations and how that intergenerational exchange and community building that happens is really beautiful. And it's an element of SGCI conferences I haven't thought of before. You know, in that, you know, as, you know, I'm in my my mid-30s and most of the people I interact with in the arts world are, are sort of more or less in my cohort. And, and I'm getting to the point now where I meet younger artists who I have more of a sort of mentorship role to, yeah. but it's just beginning. And then anyone who's the generation above me, you know, whenever I meet them, it's there's a more of a professional power dynamic at play. Like they're, you know, they're the director of a museum I'm really trying to get some work into or something. So the fact that we all can meet together socially in these ways is really significant. And I've, I've had some wonderful exchanges of ideas that there's just not really a place for in this world outside of a situation like sitting in a conference bar or getting tea after a talk, we just don't come across these opportunities to have that in-person connection really yeah. any other times. Yeah. 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 And I mean, for us, I think that's something that we, we want to try and uh, work on. So maybe, you know, we, you know, we're reviewing 
the, the conference model. I mean, you know, I said we've done this so many times. Maybe there are other ways that we can do it. You know, maybe there are smaller, maybe there are mini conferences. You know, one of the things that I'm really keen, and, and you, as you know, community is, is everything. And I think it's really important in my tenure that whatever we do really brings the community to the room. You know, that, you know, the community is, you know, a part of this this conference. And there are, you know, there are resources, there are awards that look at, you know, bringing the community into into our organization. But also youth. You know, I, I don't know if there is enough that we have done in the past that brings in, you know, supports a 15, 16 year old printmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, is there anything that we can do to do that? So we're looking at other creative ways of trying to reach out to maybe, you know, artists and scholars just like yourself who know younger printmakers and maybe bringing them into the fold and maybe finding a tier system, a way of bringing them in and introducing them into print. Because my understanding is that print is not really taught a lot in schools. Yeah. And and maybe there's a way that we can start to gain that kind of awareness and that kind of presence. And SGC has a strong enough reputation to try and, you know, kickstart something like that. Absolutely. And the kids these days, they are so smart. Like, like a 16-year-old today is so much smarter than I was at 16, 20 years ago. They're, they're so engaged and, and critical and creative and doing incredible things with, with technology and, and new media that I can't even begin to think about. So I would love to see more of that and more of just that energy and creativity in, in an organization like SGC. So I'm very happy to hear that all of that is is on your mind yeah yeah and for me having buying as well you know knowing that members can step forward and say hey you know i'm interested in the idea of that that thing around community and maybe we can think about doing this thing across you know three countries or three shops or three schools so this is where you know we need our members who are globally you know even like yourself to, to start to bring those kind of ideas to the table and we're open for, for, for collaboration. I think that's really, really important. Wonderful. Well, could any listeners take that as, a, as an open invitation and call to action to start thinking creatively about what they can do wherever they are in the world? I, will, I said it before and I'll say it again, moving beyond rhetoric, that if, if somebody really has a, an idea, they know my, my email, please reach out to me. You know, I mean, in, in my first... Uh, month as president I had to put out a lot of fires you know and a lot of the emails I got were were hot the emails were coming in hot Mm -hmm. Um, I think the emails now are coming a lot cooler and and I think there are some really beautiful ideas coming through and some wonderful emails of support from the members so I do feel we're in a really really good place and for me I, I try to work slow and steadily and, and at heart, always keep the artists at the center because that's that's my, my, my only thing is to keep them at the center. So I'm open to um, kind of ideas, suggestions uh, of ways of how we can, you know, bring print to the wider community and to a, a younger community. Beautiful. Well, I feel like that is a great place to, to wrap up with that, with that invitation and those words of hope. And I want to thank you for, for taking an hour out of your morning to chat with me and it's been just a real pleasure learning more about your practice and hearing some great words about the future of SGC and I'm, I'm really happy that that you're there breathing some life into things and engaging with the community because uh, I know it's something that's really important to all of us so thank you for your service in that as well yeah well thank you so much man it's great to be on the show wonderful well i will be in touch with you when i know the podcast coming out i'm going to try and probably get it up pretty quickly just because um i know things you know the more time people have to listen to it and think about it um hopefully the more responses you get um and the more time people have to start thinking about what they can do in the coming years so i'll i'll let you know though when it's coming out yeah, great. And again, it's been great speaking to you. And, you know, and some of the things that we spoke about today, I've only been thinking about them. Mm. So it's, it's nice. I think it's always nice to just open up a different part of your 
your kind of brain and, and, and be challenged. You know, you've asked some really incredible questions that I've never thought of. <laughs> you know, especially around my school, my early years. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you for being being so open. It's It's been a pleasure and I, I, I look forward to um, hopefully maybe collaborating on something. If I can do SGC Bangkok something something, I don't know. You've got me like excited about possibilities. So um, I hope we can stay in touch. No, without a doubt. Honestly, I'm seriously thinking about, you know, the satellite is important. You know, just some kind of satellite project where we're in different places. Mm. And, you know, so, you know, let's um, let's stay in touch. Absolutely, because, like, printmaking in Thailand is amazing. Like, it's really? just all young, incredibly talented people starting their own print shops, starting their own publishing studios. And Thailand doesn't have like a print tradition it's very unusual like it doesn't have sort of a native print tradition so they've only been working here really since the 1970s it's fascinating here so anytime i get a chance to show off the beautiful things happening in thailand it um it really moves me because they they're doing incredible things here that the world should see so maybe we can start thinking about that yeah oh i'm gonna hold you to that, that, that that's <laughs> I'm making a note in my in my in my book because I I don't do virtual stuff. I always have a physical diary, mm-hmm. so I write stuff down. So I'm making a note of that. So I'm gonna hold you to that. Sounds good. I would be happy to do like a, a virtual tour and artist talk or or yeah. something. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah maybe, uh, yeah, maybe that. Yeah, maybe that forms part of the. 21 thing we'll see I'll, I'll be in touch. Sounds great. Well, thank you again, Faisal, and um, have a beautiful day. You too. Take care. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Sean Star Wars. Sean is a beloved woodcut artist who is known for breaking all the rules with his prolific and pop culture-inspired practice. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.